traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. One thing that we've learned so far in the Twilight Zone, it's that Rod Serling was not one to throw a good idea away. If he used a story and it didn't work, he'd retool it and he'd use it again. In 1955, a show called Studio One featured a Rod Serling pen story called The Man Who Caught the Ball at Coogan's Bluff. In unlocking the door to a television classic, Martin Grams Jr. describes it like this. Sailing's script dramatised the story of George Abernathy, a 50-year-old man who works at a standard government job. He is a creature of habit. He is totally passive, selfless and dull. Even his wife controls his finances. One day in mid-August, the pattern of habit George established is altered. The office is closed for renovation, so he decides to take in a ball game at the polo grounds. A pitched ball makes its way into the crowd, and by some fantastic miracle, George stretches out his arm to protect himself and catches the ball. The crowd goes wild with backslaps and congratulations, and the TV announcer interviews him. This was an act of destiny, a new purpose in his living. George returns home and suggests to his wife that they dine out and go dancing. His clothes go from Undertaker Grey to flamboyant checks. His speech is peppery and colloquial. He may have kicked the hell out of the habit, but his wife Alice cannot philosophically take the change. They have a scene and George leaves the house, only to realise the truth. He's been kidding himself. He's been making believe. When he returns home, he chooses to remain quiet and uncomplaining. The next morning, the little man goes to work as if nothing ever happened, content with the realisation that while the world speeds past him, he will remain content if he goes about the world in his own fashion. Studio One was a monster of a show in terms of the sheer volume of episodes that it produced. It was an anthology, such was the time, but as the seasons went on, the number of episodes grew and grew. Season 3 alone had 55 episodes in it, and IMDb lists a staggering 467 episodes in total. So it would be easy for Rod Serling's little story to get lost, which made it prime material for a Twilight Zone makeover. But this time, instead of the main character changing his own world through some act of chance, it's going to be because of the Twilight Zone. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find that episode, The Man Who Caught the Ball at Coogan's Bluff. So we'll have to just see whether the Twilight Zone version stands on its own when we look at the mind and the matter. A brief, if frenetic, introduction to Mr. Archibald Beechcroft, a child of the 20th century, a product of the population explosion, and one of the inheritors of the legacy of progress. Mr. Beechcroft again. 
This time, act two of his daily battle for survival. And in just a moment, our hero will begin his personal one-man rebellion against the mechanics of his age. And to do so, he will enlist certain aids available only in the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on May 12th, 1961. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Buzz Kulik. And as direction goes, we're in the capable hands of nine-time Twilight Zone director Buzz Kulik. And this time round, he would have to make this story work on just three sets on the MGM lot. The main character, Archibald Beechcroft's apartment, the subway station and train, and Beechcroft's office. So, a very simple and direct opening narration by Rod Serling, not really integrated with what's going on on screen. An episode or two ago, I read out a passage written by Martin Grams Jr., where he said that going forward, Serling's opening narrations seem to be shorter, and it certainly seems to be the case here. And it's interesting because there are no establishing scenes before the narration, it's just straight into it. Rod Serling talking as Archibald Beechcroft battles his way to work through a crowded subway and elevator. But still, there's a moment for some Serling-esque turns of phrase as he talks about Beechcroft rebelling against the mechanics of his age. And I kinda like that, the crowded journey into work being referred to as one of the mechanics of our age. It is, unfortunately, one of the things many of us have to endure, whether it's through the streets or in traffic. So, sailing is kind of setting some boundaries here. It's not about the rat race as a whole. It's not some stop at Willoughby study about getting older and shifting priorities and being caught up in the business world. It's about the forced interactions with strangers that is such a factor in modern living and for many, that daily commute is such an ordeal that it is the biggest forced interaction there is. But Archibald Beechcroft's daytime existence seems to be one long forced interaction. When he gets to work, his office is a hive of activity, people rushing from place to place, including Henry, who seems to be an office junior or intern with a habit of spilling things. <gasps> Oh, you clumsy clod. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Beechcroft. I, I didn't notice where I was going. It's precisely your problem. After he gets coffee spilled on him, Beechcroft goes to the bathroom to clean up. And eagle-eyed viewers may notice that this is the same bathroom set used in the bus station scenes in Mirror Image. And it is the scene for one of the only real interactions that Beechcroft has in this episode, and it is with Mr. Rogers played by Chet Stratton, who we'll see again in the Twilight Zone episode, Miniature. All right, Mr. Rogers. You know, keeping yourself fit is not only a personal obligation, Beechcroft. No, no. In a larger sense, it's part of your responsibility to your job and to the firm that employs you. I'm not unaware of that, Mr. Rogers. Well, why don't you pull yourself together, man? Get some sleep at night, eat regular meals. Lots of milk, fresh vegetables, greens. Oh, you can't beat those greens for vitamins. I'm a spinach and lettuce man myself. I'd even have them for breakfast if, well, if people wouldn't look at me a little tilt. If you'd really like to know, Mr. Rogers, if you'd really like to know precisely why I am so dead tired, 
You ought to try coming to work on the subway at 7.30 every morning. Then jamming into an elevator like part of a herd of cattle. Then working in that, in that cacophonous din that you call an office. Always get jostled, always get shoved, always get pushed around. Take hold of yourself, Beechcroft. For goodness sakes, man, take hold. I'll take hold, Mr. Rogers. I'll take hold when I can achieve that millennium, that absolute perfection that comes with solitude. You read me, Mr. Rogers? People, people, people. If I had my way, here's how I'd fix the universe. I'd eliminate the people. I mean, cross them off, get rid of them, destroy them, decimate them. And there'd only be one man left, me, Archibald Beechcroft Esquire. So there you go. Rod Sailing hinted at it earlier, but now Beechcroft verbalizes it for us so we can tell what this character's thing is. He hates people. He probably hasn't always hated people, but it seems to have been brought on by this crowded daily commute and working in a noisy, busy office. So now we know what Beechcroft's issue is. A couple of things are starting to become issues for me. I'm okay with Archibald Beechcroft, and we'll talk more about him later, but this very big pantomime-esque performance of Mr. Rogers is one of the things that hasn't aged particularly well for me. Comedy doesn't always age well, and I get that, but when a character is delivering a fairly long speech about the benefits of getting sleep and eating greens, clearly this is meant to be funny, but unfortunately it's not, so it is a problem. The next thing is Beechcroft is being set up as one of those Twilight Zone characters for whom the Twilight Zone is going to have some sort of effect to either punish him or make him see the error of his ways. But at the moment I'm actually sympathising with him more than thinking he needs some sort of Twilight Zone intervention. He's just had this hellish commute, his office is busy and noisy, he's had coffee spilled on him, He's every right to feel grumpy about it. He does kind of overstep things when he says that he wants to obliterate all other people. But at this point, it's just words. The kinds of words that people do say in the heat of the moment. But they're not just words for long, so let's see how it progresses. In the next scene, Beechcroft goes to the office cafeteria for lunch. And you have to hand it to Buzz Kulik. He's done a good job of making these pretty fabricated looking sets look very busy but annoyingly busy when Beechcroft walks to his table a woman gets up and walks in front of him and these scenes are filled with things like that people just moving everywhere making it a very uncomfortable space to be in a friend of mine works in a bookstore around the corner I I went there first part of the lunch break I got you this mind and the matter, how you can achieve the ultimate power of concentration. A little on the occult side, isn't it, Henry? Maybe so, Mr. Beechcroft, but, but this friend of mine is, is, well, you might say he's a, a student of the mind. Mm -hmm. oh, he swears by that book. He says, to the best of his knowledge, it's the only one in existence. Would you believe it, Mr. Beechcroft? I've seen, I've seen my friend cause a woman purchase a chartreuse and orange scarf. How's that? That's right, Mr. Beechcroft. We were in a department store, and he saw some woman picking over a table full of scarves that were on sale. 
Eddie, concentrate real hard on the chartreuse and orange one. And Mr. Beechcroft, as sure as I'm sitting here in the cafeteria of the Park Central Insurance Company, that woman picked up the chartreuse and orange scarf. Why, it's the absolute unvarnished truth. <gasps> oh! So far in the Twilight Zone, to name just two, we've had a most unusual camera. We've had a penny for your thoughts. Objects of power with little explanation, but we'll let that slide because they conform to a long-held storytelling tradition of discovering a magic artifact. And the how and the why isn't really as important as to what happens to the people who use it. This time round though, it's a book and we hear from Henry that it's one of a kind. We hear that the previous owner has done, well, I won't say incredible things with it. He made a woman buy a scarf, but he's done things with it. Now Beechcroft needs to read the book and then hone his concentration skills to actually use it. So in this world of unusual cameras and coins that make you read minds, is this any better or worse than those things? Well, I don't actually think that this book has any power as such. To me, I think the book is probably just some self-help nonsense book. But what it does is it gives the Twilight Zone an in, a way of empowering Beechcroft in that very Twilight Zone way, to give him a glimpse of what life would be like if his wish came true. Now granted, it's not really in the script, but the example Henry gave of his friend making a woman buy a scarf was just so lame that it was kind of laughable and Beechcroft pretty much just rolled his eyes at it too. But there is a slight change in Beechcroft's expression as he accepts the book from Henry. A kind of softening, an acknowledgement of someone doing something nice for him, which was a nice subtle piece of acting by Shelley Behrman in an episode where the performances are usually anything but subtle. So let's talk about young Henry before he's banished for most of the episode. He's played by Jack Greenwich, a very baby-faced actor who would have actually been about 30 at this point, but could still pass for younger. Even when you see pictures of him as he is now a man in his 80s, he still has that baby-faced quality about him. More of a steady actor than one who was particularly prolific. His credits start in 1954, but a year later, still very young in his career. He played Moose in the James Dean film, Rebel Without a Cause. He worked steadily through the 50s and 60s, but only single performances sometimes returning to the same show playing different characters. But it wasn't until the 70s that he got a real recurring role in the now much loved but sadly cut short Kolchak, the Night Stalker, where he played Ron Updike. Now his performance is quite broad here, but it seems that's what the actors were being asked to do in this episode, like we saw with Chet Stratton earlier. Now although he only comes in at the beginning and the end of the episode, he actually had more to do in the scenes where he had been banished along with every other person in the world. He said, this was an interesting shot for me, as I not only played the role of Henry, but I was also booked to play the scenes with Shelley when he was talking to himself. I made it possible for Mr. Behrman to react with someone. I would be off camera playing his alter ego. Then 
they would do the reverse on him and I would play the other ego. I also remember him talking about his prior experience of having the masks made, putting some gooey substance on his face to make the mould. Buzz Kulik was great to work with. As I was doing a review called the Billy Barnes People at the time and had to make the 8pm curtain, I made each curtain just in time after each day's shoot. It was a fun job. They're right. They're absolutely, unequivocally right. Concentration is the most underrated, unknown power in the universe. While a person could... A person could move mountains. I could just concentrate hard enough to get rid of the... Concentration is what it takes. Concentrate on getting rid of the people. Mr. Beechcroft, the rent is due, Mr. Beechcroft. And concentrate hard enough, he does. After making his landlady disappear on his way to work the next day, he then goes on to make everyone disappear. Now you could ask why he bothers going into work at all if he's the only man left in the world, and at first I figured okay he's just going to see what it's like with nobody around, but then when he gets there he actually takes a file out and he does some typing, he does a day's work, but it's an insurance company, who needs insurance when there's nobody left in the world? I'm kind of reminded of the episode The Escape Clause where Walter Bedecker gets the power of immortality, but then claims to be bored, but he doesn't go beyond the same few blocks that he lives on. It seems that the reality of creating these stories within a time limit and budget impacted on what fiction was contained in them. This man Beechcroft is not only the only man in the world, but he has the ability to shape reality how he wants it, and within a couple of hours he's bored. But this could be a comment on what a very small and lacking in imagination person Beechcroft is. And these stories are fables, the point isn't the scale or even characters acting in a completely realistic way. But the fact that I'm even considering these things is a signal to me that the episode just isn't quite grabbing me because I can usually let go of little things and be carried along with the magic of the Twilight Zone. Too much of a good thing? Oh, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say that. But you're thinking it. Bored to death, aren't you? Well, uh, uh, let's uh, just say that, uh, let's just say that I am temporarily somewhat accessible to suggestions as to uh, how to occupy my time. <laughs> so? Let's face it, you are bored to tears. So what do you do when your show only consists of one character? They can either talk to themselves, like in Where Is Everybody? They can have an inner monologue, like in King Nine Will Not Return? Or in this case, we can have these sequences where Archibald Beechcroft speaks to reflections of himself. 
which kind of poke fun at him and speak to him slightly disapprovingly. So while Archibald speaks to himself, let's speak about him. Archibald Beechcroft is played by Shelley Behrman. I get the feeling that Shelley is probably a bit more of a recognizable American institution than he is here in England. I remember him most as Larry David's dad in Curb Your Enthusiasm, but he's been another steady actor since 1954. And like Jack Greenwich, he rarely took recurring roles. And the reason might be that he had this whole other thing going on, as well as acting on TV and in movies. He was a stage actor and a very successful comedian who has released several comedy albums over the years. And he was very famous for a particular kind of routine where he talked and had a, a kind of one-sided conversation on a phone on stage. Hello, accounting. Oh, hello, Mr. White. No, 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 I was just about to go home. Uh-huh. Uh, well, that's very nice, but I, I wonder if I can take a rain check on that, sir. You see, my wife expects me home on the 5.15 train. We're having company tonight, and... Uh, uh, well, uh, no, no, don't, don't get me wrong, sir. You know you know, I like to hear a good joke as well as the next fellow, and I, I know how much you enjoy telling them, sir. It's just that it's 5 o'clock, and I only have five, 15 minutes to catch a train. Uh, oh, well, if it's a quickie, I mean, that's different, sir. I'm sure I can listen to it. Uh, but I, I wonder, I wonder can, I, can I make a little deal with you here, sir? Uh, can I stop you if I've heard it? <laughs> why, why do you say that, sir? Well, of course I like my job, sir. I love my job. No, no, no. No, I, no, I love it here. And what's even more important, sir, I love to hear your jokes. And no, and I, I'm just dying to hear one right now. And I know that, I know that even if I've heard it a thousand times, you're going to have some, some new inflection, some new twist that will make it a thrilling new experience for me, sir, even if it is only a quickie. How, how often, how often I have said to my sweet wife, who uh, is expecting me on the 515, how often, how often I have told her how lucky I am to be working for a man who, who likes to hand his employees an occasional laugh. It's a kind of strength through joy, isn't it, sir? Uh, I, I always say this to my sweet wife, who is having company tonight, who is even, even now probably driving down to the train to meet me, so you'll go right ahead with your joke. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Oh, that one again. You've probably sensed so far that I'm not totally on board with this episode, but I do like Shelley Behrman. He's one of those classic old Hollywood guys who could do a little bit of everything, but had his own speciality. Some specialised in dance, some sang, but Shelley had comedy. And for an episode that is low on subtlety, it's his little comic touches and little looks here and there that make it watchable for me. But I think the script needed to have faith in his abilities. Now, during the times when he's talking to himself, not the reflected version of himself, I think he pulls it off quite well, probably better than Earl Holloman ever did in Where Is Everybody? And I feel that the script should have given him a chance to convey what he was saying to his reflection self with a combination of talking to himself and body language, because I think he could have done it. Stuart T. Stanyard interviewed Shelley Behrman in his book Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone and as ever he said, what were your first impressions of Rod Sailing? And Shelley said, All my impressions, first and always, of Rod Sailing were of admiration. First of all, he was such a sweetheart of a guy, a gentleman. 
You didn't know how such a really relaxed, laid-back type of guy like that could think of the things he thought of and be able to discipline himself to put it down. He was quite a decent man. He loved to sit out there and write by his pool. That was his big thing. He had a world-class tan and he was happy with that. He was a nice-looking guy. And Stanyard asks him, tell me about working with Buzz Kulik. And he says, it was so easy. It was really so easy. You never thought you were being directed. You thought you were being carried and taken care of. You always felt at ease with him. You didn't feel like somebody saying, well, you go there, you sit here, you do that. However it came to you, you knew where you were going to sit. You knew what you were going to do because the writing was so good. Rod was a marvelous writer. You always knew how to interpret. You always knew what you were going to do, how you were going to do it. We had a special effect, and that is when this magical moment comes of changing everything in the world. It was supposed to be a big shake-up of the world. So the set shook, and the camera shook, and I flew. And they had to do it again, and the set shook, and the camera shook, and I flew. And Buzz wasn't happy with it, and we did it again, till finally I thought, maybe I'm going to die here, and we're never going to shoot this, and I'm going to be shaken to death, and everything is going to end and my life would end here. Now Stanyard asks him, had you ever been considered for other Twilight Zone parts? And he replied, no, just the one. It was written for me, and I'm very honored by it. Which is very sweet, but actually in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr. documents, on June 7, 1960, Martin Dubow of the William Morris Agency approached sailing about the possibility of using Joey Bishop for an episode of The Twilight Zone. I would like you to very much keep Joey Bishop in mind for some of your forthcoming shows. Sailing wrote a kind reply, suggesting he would get back to them shortly. After the script, The Mind and the Matter was completed, Bishop turned out to be unavailable, so Sailing tracked down comedian Shelley Behrman. So Bishop was a comedian too, so this was always going to be a, a kind of comic episode. And then Behrman recalls, well, I received a phone call from Sailing one day and it was a surprise asking me if I would like to start an episode of The Twilight Zone. He told me he had a script tailored for me and with me in mind when he wrote it. I was just surprised and of course I said yes. I think I was dizzy in the head when he phoned me. So what does a man who is getting lonely, who has the power to shape reality, but doesn't have the imagination to see beyond the four walls that surround him do. Of course. Of course. Why didn't I think of it before? Think of what? People. People who I can stand. People like... People like myself. That's what I'll do. I'll create people. But they'll... They'll be like me. A world full of Archibald Beechcroft. Now that's a thought. You bet your life is a thought. You bet your sweet life. So a world filled with Archibald Beechcrofts presents some challenges for the production. And sometimes they pull it off well, like the scene where Beechcroft picks up a newspaper from the stall only to be accused of being dishonest by a version of himself. But then there's the scene where Beechcroft enters a crowded elevator. And Shelley Behrman recalls this and he says, I never saw the script till I arrived in Hollywood. The scene where I play a woman in the elevator was my idea. Rod was on set when we were rehearsing with Buzz Kulik, a fine director by the way, and he asked me what I thought about playing all these roles. 
I told him, well, it's fine, Rod, but I think you're missing something the audience needs for a laugh. He asked me what that was, and I told him. I thought I should be a woman somewhere. He told me, I'll fix that for you. The next day, we were filming. I learned that I was going to be playing a woman in the elevator. Now, we all know that Martin Grams Jr. does his research, and he says that according to an MGM production sheet and casting vouchers, an actress named Betty Rosa was hired to play the role of woman Shelley Behrman, but she never appears in this episode. She was filmed for the elevator scene, followed by Behrman's role as the woman. After looking over the dailies, Houghton or Sailing chose Behrman's portrayal the better of the two, and her footage was discarded. So, kind of mix there between Shelley Behrman's recollection of it and what the production sheets are saying. Now, I guess we'll never know, but it's a possibility that perhaps she was just being a stand-in, kind of like the way Jack Greenwich was, and her footage was never actually meant to be used. We don't know, but it's interesting how history, some things we're just never truly going to get to the bottom of. I can't actually find anything about Betty Rosa to see whether she'd be a good fit for a female version of Beechcroft. But what aren't good fits are the masks that the extras in the elevator were wearing in this scene. I don't like to come down too hard on 50s and 60s effects, but especially in the Blu-ray age, these ones look pretty bad. These masks were made by William Tuttle, and Buzz Kulik says in The Twilight Zone Companion, the first batch he made just didn't seem to look like Shelley at all, and I'm not sure they ever looked like Shelley. The problem is, when you do television, you can't say, let's wait another three or four weeks and take another shot at it. So the masks aren't great, but what is done well is a shot that goes from the real Archibald Beechcroft in his office and then pans across to four other versions of him sitting at desks. Now, it's only broken up by one reaction shot of him and it's really well done. But after spending a morning commute and a minute in his office with all of these other versions of himself, Archibald Beechcroft seems to have learned his lesson. Had it? Undeniably. Coming through to you, huh? Without a doubt. A lot of me is just as bad as a lot of them. So? What's to do now? I'll just put it back the way it was. Just the way it was. Martin Grams Jr. documents a note from Henry Strauss of Henry Strauss & Co. where he wrote to Sailing after viewing this episode requesting to discuss the possibilities of obtaining 16mm rights for distribution to industry and schools. And Sailing's response was, thank you for your interesting letter. Unfortunately, we intend to do a small, low-budget picture of the mind and the matter, which I think mitigates against the possibility of using it elsewhere. So that was the story of Archibald Beechcroft. Now, if you read out a list of the main characters in episodes of The Twilight Zone, without knowing the titles of the episodes that they're in, you can often have a good guess at which ones are Rod Sailing penned comedies from the names of those characters. 
Archibald Beechcroft joins the ranks of Luther Dingle and James B.W. Beavis as a character where even before a line of dialogue is uttered, you can tell Sailing is putting a humorous slant on their name. And while it stands to reason that a humorous story might have a character with a humorous name, when Sailing does it, I feel that there is a certain clumsiness to it for me, and and it's this clumsiness that more often than not runs throughout his comedic scripts. I'm not pointing out anything here that hasn't been said before. You know, it's been spoken of for years that the weaker Twilight Zones often seem to be the comedy ones. And I sometimes wonder why that is, why this amazing writer who has such a perfect touch with other types of story can't master this type of story. Sailing is often a very wordy writer, very dialogue heavy in his scripts and sometimes comedy needs the space to be short and sharp and quick but I'm not completely sure that's the reason why it doesn't quite work. You know Monty Python is often very dialogue heavy too and it's that clever use of language that is often the point. So I guess comedy just wasn't his strong point because too much dialogue isn't really the problem with this one for me. So comedy aside, if we go back to what this story is all about, as I said earlier, we have a man who is not so much tired of the rat race as such, the push 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 of the business world, but more the forced interactions with people that he faces on a daily basis. Getting on a packed subway train, walking through crowded streets, getting into cramped elevators then, eating his lunch in a packed cafeteria, and his interactions are often with short-tempered people who snap at him or give him disapproving looks. And the episode does do such a good job of showing what a grind that is that I kind of sit there and think, yeah, if I was him, I'd hate it too. So Beechcroft is coming from a, a pretty understandable position. It's like the episode The Man in the Bottle where a man and wife whose business is going under get depressed about it and I think to myself you know quite right I'd be pretty depressed about that too so perhaps it's just me but I do struggle sometimes with stories where the protagonists are supposed to be taught some sort of lesson but their point of view is pretty understandable in the first place this isn't Ebenezer Scrooge turning from a nasty mean man into a good charitable one that being said though, I do see some point to this episode. While it is understandable to be annoyed at being herded to work every day like a piece of cattle, if you're being as grouchy and discourteous as everyone else, then you're just as much part of the problem as they are. If you drive home at rush hour and your journey is ruined by someone cutting you up in traffic, then why is it okay for you to ruin someone else's journey by cutting them up? I actually think that message is quite clear in this one and Beechcroft sums it up when he says, a lot of me is just as bad as a lot of them. He is as much part of the problem as anyone else is. That whole daily grind would be that much better if everyone was that much more courteous, that much more respectful, and that much more calmer and for me 
that's the point to be the change that you want to see in the world so i suppose this isn't the twilight zone punishing a bad person as such it's more the twilight zone saying to a generally good if a little grumpy guy come on you know get it together it's helping him to cope as much as it is teaching him a lesson so there is the seeds of something good here and i also like that it isn't the twilight zone solving someone's midlife crisis or punishing someone for some massive wrongdoing its focus is a bit smaller this time round rather than completely changing someone's life but what it comes down to is it's supposed to be a comedy and it's just not funny so all those other little gripes that i would normally be able to gloss over start to become more prominent for me i like the message here just not the execution yes i was wondering if that book i gave you did you get anything out of it well uh not really henry i uh frankly i thought it was a lot of pap it's interesting but uh, totally unbelievable Mr. Archibald Beechcroft, a child of the 20th century, who has found out through trial and error, and mostly error, that with all its faults, it may well be that this is the best of all possible worlds. People notwithstanding, it has much to offer. Tonight's case in point, in the Twilight Zone. Let's read some listener emails in Submitted for your approval. had an email from John Beeman and he says hey Tom just listen to your podcast on shadow play and it was wonderful as always I never tire of your take on things and the insight you bring and I agree with you completely this isn't just a heavy hitter to me it's easily in my top five episodes perhaps my favorite when I was a kid I loved this episode because a character in it shared my name father Beeman I used to fancy that his first name was John but went by Jack, just like me. Beeman isn't a terribly unusual name, but it's hardly common, especially in the States. So when it pops up in an odd episode or movie here and there, it always catches my attention. It is an English name, and with the addition of John Arthur in front of it, I may just have the most English name of any Texan alive. Although the accent died out in my family a few generations ago, I'm proud of my name's roots, and hope to visit them one day. That was a tangent, sorry, no, not at all. I hope you get to visit them one day too. What isn't tangential, however, and it struck me when I was listening, was that it was written by Charles Beaumont. Beeman is a variation of Beaumont. The connection can be traced to late 14th century Kent. I would find it particularly uncanny if Charles Beaumont hadn't been aware of this, considering the fact that Beaumont is actually his chosen pseudonym, Charles Nutt being his birth name. It makes me wonder if deciding on a pen name, he vacillated between Beaumont and Beeman, ultimately deciding on one, but leaving the other for another day, eventually finding a place in shadow play. Just a thought, it could just be a coincidence. 
One final thing, I greatly appreciate the addition of Rod Sailing's interview with Mike Wallace in the Twilight Zone podcast library. I've seen it many times, but I am immeasurably delighted to be able to have it with me wherever I go, always at my ready and easily shared with friends. Thank you so much for thinking of this edition. It's an absolute treasure. Always your avid listener, Jack. Well, thank you, Jack. I uh, I appreciate that. You know, you know those interviews that I've been including when I don't really have much time to put a proper episode together seem to be a happy kind of accident, I suppose, because I, I really do think they add something to the fabric of the show, hearing Sailing's thoughts direct from the man rather than through me. Yeah, you know, being able to have them in a podcast feed where you can go back to them. I'm really pleased that you kind of appreciate that, so thank you. I've had an email from Brian Finley, and he says, Hello, my name is Brian, and I'm from Belfast. I have been listening to your Twilight Zone podcast for a while. It's a fun, easy listen show that you can relax to. I remember watching Twilight Zone as a kid late at night. It was always either a nice place to visit or people are alike all over. You know what, Brian? You're absolutely right. I I remember that as a kid too, but I'll throw mirror image in there as well. I don't know whether it's just the way certain episodes stick in my mind, or I don't think they played them with any care as to, to what order they went in or what season or whatever. But I do seem to remember that it always seemed to be a nice place to visit. People are alike all over, and I also remember it being mirror image too. So whether that's just our memories of it, or maybe, you know, they just thought, oh, we'll just throw something on at two in the morning, let's put this on. You might be right. So anyway, he goes on to say, my favorite episode is The Lonely, just for the atmosphere, good call. I thought I would ask your opinion on something that occurred to me recently. As someone from the UK, I'm sure you remember Tales of the Unexpected. I was re-watching it recently and it struck me that it was like a British version of The Twilight Zone. Both shows have an introduction by the show's creator. The episodes often end with a twist and both have distinctive theme tunes. Also in the same way that The Twilight Zone has American themes, Tales is very British. I don't think it's anywhere near as good as Twilight Zone, but it gives me a similar otherworldly feel when I watch it. Thanks again for such a great podcast. Well, thank you, Brian. I wish I could give you a a proper answer to that, but I do remember it being on when I was a kid. I remember the music. You can't forget the music or the, the image of the woman kind of dancing in the flame on the opening credits. But I, I can't recall ever watching an episode. I think it was something that my parents or other relatives watched, but I never really got into. Um, it was always on in the background, so I can't really give you a full answer on that. You know, if I had the time, I would actually like to check out some episodes and see whether it still holds up. So maybe I'll I'll come back to you on that one. I've had an email from Mike Gillet, and he says, Tom, I've been listening to your TZ podcast for some time now, and I've gone back to listen to older episodes as well. I listen to very few podcasts, one or less a week but always make time for yours. I've always loved Twilight Zone and I enjoy hearing the trivia and commentary about the episodes as told by you. You do an excellent job in all aspects of the podcast and I look forward to hearing it for a long time. Well, thank you, Mike, and I think it will be a long time at this rate, but I'm glad you're on board. He said, I want to talk about the monsters are due on Maple Street for a minute. 
I was watching it on Sci-Fi Network's marathon over the years. It is, in my opinion, the best episode. It has been discussed a lot, I'm sure, and I've listened again to your podcast just for good measure. I've seen it many times, but something struck me on this watching that I've never thought before. The young boy Tommy is the one that suggests the strange occurrences are due to aliens, and this is the start of everyone's suspicion. He also warns Steve not to leave, because they don't want you to. Obviously this fits into the story perfectly since they had very limited amount of time to tell it. They could not have a lot of different theories for the characters to work through, they had to get the story moving quickly. He also is the one that suggests that the alien sent someone or several people ahead to prepare things. This also helps arouse suspicion. It was at this point that I started thinking, what if Tommy was an alien that was sent ahead? It would then make perfect sense for him to tell the others that aliens were causing the power outage and make them wonder if one of them were in fact a monster. Also, he would have the motive to keep everyone there, knowing what would happen later. As this theory was working in my head, I came to the part where Pete Van Horn is walking down the street. I had forgotten this, but right before Charlie shoots him, it is none other than Tommy that screams, It's the monster, shoot him! Anyone could have said that, but it was Tommy. It probably wasn't the intent that Tommy is an alien in the story, or there would have been a reveal, but it does make you think. You know, Mike, over the years there have been times in this show that I've probably thought about similar things in episodes. I'm remembering way back when in the second episode, one for the angels where where I kind of thought on maybe death let him off with the pitch, that kind of thing, and it wasn't in the show, but you can kind of think of it that way. So there's probably a few things like that, but you know, good points. Someone sent down there to, to kind of stir things up. It could be. And Mike goes on to say, another observation that I find funny, how many times in TZ do you hear a character refer to a strange occurrence as a gag? It seemed to happen quite often. I'm 40 years old and I've never heard anyone use the word gag in that way. Indeed, I've almost never heard it at all. I wonder was it popular in the late 50s and early 60s to play an elaborate practical joke on someone and laugh as you told them it was just a gag. For a future podcast episode, I cannot wait for your podcast, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? Well, you won't have to wait too long, Mike. This is one of, if not my favourite episode. On its own, I suppose it's not considered one of the greats, but my opinion of it is not totally based on the merits of the episode itself. When I was growing up in the 80s, I would hear my father and sometimes others talking about their favourite episodes of The Twilight Zone. I can't remember hearing them talk about other TV shows, especially ones that were so old, so I knew these must be pretty special. I don't remember many specifics aside from, but that got the seeds planted. When I did get to see some of the episodes, I went into them with great expectations and almost always was satisfied. It wasn't until I was a teenager in the 90s that I remember them being shown on a daily basis. They would come on late at night around 10pm I believe and my father and I would watch them sometimes. It was a cold night when I first saw Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up. It wasn't snowing, we live in the southern part of the US, but it was dark and cold and the house was quiet. I had never seen or heard of this episode before. So I was able to take in each part not knowing what was going to happen. I liked the mystery of it, but it was all taking place in one room, that it was dark and cold outside, just like my house. 
I liked the suspicion that the passengers had, just like the monsters on Maple Street and of course the ending, but what really made it special was the feeling I had watching it. All of those things combined together in a way that is very rare. I believe if you had seen it during a warm July day, or if I'd heard about it before, it would not have been as special. I think TZ is best watching this way at night and when it's quiet, and even better if it's one you've never seen or heard of before. I can't compliment you enough on the job you're doing over the Christmas holidays. I listened to your reading of The Howling Man and the podcast about the episode. You mentioned that it's traditional to listen to scary stories at this time of year. I've never heard of this before, except in the song The Most Wonderful Time of the Year, where he sings, We'll tell scary ghost stories and tales of past glories. I only really caught what he was saying in the past few years. I wonder if this is a European tradition and has been lost here in the US. For what it's worth, I really enjoyed your reading of The Howling Man, so maybe I'm catching up on tradition. Cheers, Mike. Well, thank you, Mike. It's, uh, that's interesting because it is a tradition. I wouldn't say it's a huge part of, of Christmas that, you know, people always do, but things like the BBC would have a ghost story at Christmas. I think they've restarted that in the last few years and you know i think in literature too, too going back i mean a christmas carol is obviously one of the most famous ones and that's not so much a scary ghost story but it is a ghost story so it is somewhat of a tradition i wouldn't say it's a huge one i mean you don't spend all christmas night telling ghost stories or anything like that but it is a part of it but i'm not quite sure how far that spreads out of england whether it's a thing anywhere else but thank you for your compliments on the howler man you know i'm really happy with that one i don't think there'll ever be another reading that had such a a perfect opportunity for use of effects and so on so i i really enjoyed that one too if you want to get in touch with the show like John, Brian and Mike have, then email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com. I did have a few email issues recently, so if I haven't at this point either read out your email or responded and said thank you, then please resend your email because it might have got lost. I've always said that if someone's talking about the show or their memories of the show, then I will generally read it out. Or, but if someone just sort of emails me and says, hey Tom, great show, love it, then I will just usually say thank you in an email and not generally read it out. But any contact is welcome, so email me at tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com. Now, some of you might recall a few episodes ago, I sent out a call for some listener participation in the show. I had a great response, so many people Put their names in the hat and there was two ways of doing that because there was two landmarks coming up there was the end of season two of the twilight zone and there was also the hundreds episode and you know this hasn't been the most consistent of podcasts because of my schedule it's been very choppy so i wanted to say a thank you to the listeners by getting some listeners involved because i do have a great audience the listening figures have always been great and you know, people jumping on board and new people have been jumping on board all the time. So I wanted to say thank you for that um, by having some listeners involved in this end of season two and 100th episode thing. So the people who are going to be part of the season two closer 
have been chosen now. It was it was a random thing, names out of a hat. So I'm sorry if if you haven't been chosen, but the people who have been chosen do know that they're going to be part of it now and I'll be doing those recordings over the next few weeks and as far as the listener stories goes for episode 100 where I will read out people's Twilight Zone-esque listener stories uh, they haven't been chosen yet but the stories are with uh, the judges now so a decision will be made soon but this episode The Mind and the Matter is episode 94 And I don't usually do this, but because we're kind of coming up to the 100th episode, I'm just going to tell you a rundown of what the next episodes are going to be. So episode 95 will be Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? Episode 96 is going to be The Obsolete Man. And then episode 97 is the season 2 wrap-up show. Now, there's about six people involved with that so i'm going to schedule that over two episodes so it's not such a a huge long thing or it might be that i will do a sort of compilation show with you know all of the people then maybe one show with just one of the people i haven't really figured that out yet but i do know it's going to be over two episodes so that's episodes 97 and 98. now episode 99 is something that I think is going to be a little bit special. It's going to be a special episode called The Forgotten Twilight Zone. So that's all I'm going to say about that one for now, but please stay tuned for that one because I think it could be quite good. And then episode 100 will be those listener-submitted Twilight Zones. So, you know, we're almost there, and I'm going to work hard to try and get these out fairly consistently you know it's it's probably not going to be every week because they do take a lot of production but maybe every couple of weeks i'm going to do my best anyway to get to that 100 and then episode 101 is going to be not a relaunch i suppose but it's going to be the first episode of season three and it's going to be nice to kind of close the book on season two because it did take so long to get through and make it a kind of fresh start on a new season of the twilight zone so i'm looking forward to that if you enjoy the show then please leave me a review on itunes i always appreciate it and mr teaspoon did that recently on the us itunes so i'm not only close to 100 episodes of the show but i'm also close to 100 itunes reviews on the us itunes so i really would appreciate it so thank you mr teaspoon and i will catch you next time for will the real martian please stand up